Good morning, y'all. Well, you all saw the full moon out there on your way in this morning, and full moon means good theology today. So that's what Romans 3, verses 21 through 31 is all about. So please turn to Romans 3, 21. And uh, we noticed last time that if anybody thinks they can escape from Paul's theology of sin, you got another thought coming if you're here last week. Uh, that was an amazing study, really for three weeks, uh, four weeks, looking at Paul's development of human beings as sinners under the wrath of God. Took, we took four weeks to do it. He took two chapters to do it. And all to set us up for these, these verses that follow so that we understand them. And uh, this, uh, as one commentator has put it, this section that we're going to study this morning is the Acropolis of all the Bible, or the Mount McKinley. Uh, we really come to the height of, of our salvation here in its glory and in its power. So we want to devote ourselves to these 11 verses and seek to the best of our ability to understand them. And I'm going to uh, walk through it expositionally as we always do. And then I'm going to draw some contrast. So I'm going to uh, probably uh, fuss at you Methodists for a little while in one part of this talk. I'm going to fuss at you Roman Catholics for a little while in part of this talk. And then I'm going to conclude by fussing at you Presbyterians. So uh, you Baptists and Episcopalians get a pass today, but you all are so easy to attack. We'll do that some other day. Uh, uh, so we'll just get those three groups today and we'll get the rest of you uh, soon, I'm sure. But let's look at Romans 3.21 and read verses 21 through 31. Hear the word of God. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Notice, first of all, Roman numeral number one, God justifies sinners. 
These first two words are very precious to us. The Apostle Paul says, but now. In uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones' commentaries, which you know go on for years. He preached through Romans over 11 or 12 years. You think we're going slow. We're going like a you know, bolt of lightning compared to Martin Lloyd-Jones. But in his text on this, he almost preaches a whole sermon on, but now. And he makes a point. He says, you know, anybody who's really been converted to Jesus Christ, anyone who's really walking with him, anyone who's really saved, these two words are precious. He says, you know, when you're down on yourself and you're saying, you know, I can't live this Christian life. I just give up. But now, or when the devil's trying to accuse you and to shame you and to make you think that you're never going to make it to paradise itself, but now. And any time that you, you get really uh, bound up with a guilt complex and just condemning yourself, but now. And these words, but now, are so important for us. Uh, the Apostle Paul has been showing us how on our own merits, by what we can do, either before you're converted or after you're converted, if you take all your efforts, they lead you nowhere but to God's wrath. He's shown us that clearly in uh, the first two and a half chapters of this great letter. But now, we're going to see that if we try to achieve a standing with God, if we try to be justified by performance, we don't have a ghost of a chance. But now, there is another way. So we have to give up completely on the performance route before we're going to look to the gift route. And Paul's going to show us, but now, there is a gift and it's completely apart from all these efforts that you naturally try to make to justify yourself. And every religion in the world, except for the religion of the Holy Scriptures, every religion of the world has a way for you to be justified, either in your own sight or in the sight of the deity. And Paul has been saying, none of those work. It condemns everybody. Everybody's mouth is shut. But now... If I got everybody's mouth shut and everybody will give up on their religious ways to be justified, now I've got your attention, says the Apostle Paul, there is a way. But it's a way that's completely different from the way that you naturally think of and that is suffused through all the religions of the world. So let's take a look at this. But now, he says, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Now let's look at this word righteousness of God. This is important. It, if we had time, we could spend a, one of our amen days on talking about the controversies of the new perspectives in Paul. I wish we had that day. We don't. Uh, so email me and I'll give you some bibliographic help. There's a lot of debate about what this righteousness is. What we have to realize, and I've put it here in your notes, there are two ways to look at righteousness in the Bible. Number one is to understand it as God's righteous character, specifically his faithfulness to his covenant, his faithfulness to his promises. When God makes promises, he keeps them. When, he's, when he reveals to us principles of moral righteousness, he abides by them. God can't do everything. God cannot violate his own character. That's something he can't do. So God can't do everything. Can God make a rock so big he can't pick it up? No. So there are some things he can't do, and he cannot violate his own character. His righteousness is his faithfulness. It's his morality, if you will, and he is purely righteous. That's one way to look at righteousness. 
And that way is used in some places in Romans, and this is what makes it confusing. Because the second way of speaking of righteousness is his gift of righteousness to sinners. The word that we use theologically for justification is the same word, daosakune, for righteousness. So it gets very confusing. What does Paul mean? Does he mean the righteousness of God in his character? Or does he mean the righteous gift that God gives to sinners, namely justification, when we're using that word? Well, we're going to see that all kinds of words are used in different ways. The word faith can also be used for the, word, the English word faithfulness. Now think of how confusing that could be. If we're saved by faith, that same word for faith is the word that's, that's, that means faithfulness. So are we saved by our faithfulness? No, that's just what Paul has been denying, which is my point. You understand definitions by context, not just by the word itself, but by context. And in this context, Paul has obviously been putting the nicks on thinking of yourself as being righteous based on anything you've done. So obviously he's not talking about being, right, being righteous through your faithfulness. So when we look at the context, we know that the word pistis means faith here. It just means trusting the Lord, not obeying the Lord. So all kinds of words are determined by context. Take the word Israel. Israel normally means the ethnic group of people uh, in the land of Palestine in the Old Testament that God called out for his own nation. But when you get to Romans a little later on, he'll use Israel in two different ways. He'll use it that way, and then he'll also use it just to speak about the church of Jews and Gentiles. So he'll use it not only for the Jews, but now he'll use it for Jew and Gentile. So you have to look at context to determine the meaning of words. And I know you're thinking, oh boy, thanks a lot. That's going to take me a while. How am I ever going to figure out what a word means? Well, it does take work. And gradually, as you get more familiar with the context of what's being said, the words make more and more sense to you, as we'll see here. But he says, but now the righteousness of God, and he means here, this gift of righteousness, this status of righteousness that is given to sinners. And he's saying, but now there is a righteousness that is available to sinners. And I want to tell you how you can get this righteous status. You're never going to get it by conformity to your religious standards. No matter what religion you're in, whether you're Protestant, Catholic, Jew, Muslim, Hindu, Buddhist, no matter what your religious affiliation, you will never gain this status of righteousness by your performance to your religious standards. He's already nixed all that. Remember, he took the most difficult case, the most religious people in the world, which were the Jews, and he showed how their conformity or alleged conformity to their religious standards would never achieve for them an eternal intimacy with God. But now, there is a gift of the righteous status. But now there is. Okay, you say, well, what is it? I'm glad you asked. Look at the next thing that he says in uh, number A, letter A, apart from the law. Apart from the law. 
Now, this is really interesting because I've listed up above that a couple of verses in Deuteronomy and Proverbs where God makes it clear that it is our obligation to acquit the innocent person and to convict the guilty person. And he stresses it throughout the Old Testament that a righteous person always convicts the guilty person and always acquits the innocent person, regardless of favoritism or family relations or anything else. And you'll convict the Israelite and acquit the Gentile if that's reflective of the facts. And that's stressed throughout the Old Testament. So how can it be that God now is going to acquit guilty people? That's the big question. This is the hugely theological question that has to be confronted in Christian salvation. And I can remember a Muslim raising this question with me. I was evangelizing a Muslim and explained to him how Christ took our place on Calvary's cross. He says, that's unrighteous. That's unfair. How could God put your sins onto another person? How can God be righteous and not condemn you if the standard is perfection? That's the big question. And Paul's going to show us, and one of his main ideas is to show us how Christian salvation passes the bar of God's perfect justice. It's apart from the law, he says, to begin with. Now, once again, I've shown you at least four definitions here of law. This is another one of those words. It can mean the, Old Test the whole Old Testament. For example, Paul says in a moment, the law and the prophets, what's he referring to? The entire Old Testament. So when you say law in the Bible, it could refer to all the Old Testament. It could refer simply to the books of Moses. Sometimes the law refers to the Pentateuch. The prophets refers to everything else and of course the Psalms. So the law, the prophets, and the Psalms that summarizes all the Bible. I didn't even include that one, the book of Moses, but it's, it's, it could be the Old Testament. Or it could mean the Old Testament moral code, specifically the laws of Moses, the Ten Commandments. So when you're dealing with the word law, it could mean the 631 laws of, uh, 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 613 laws of the Old Testament. That's a possibility in the New Testament. Or it could mean the Jewish customs. So sometimes Paul will use the word law, and what he means is circumcision, Sabbath, food laws, all of those ritual laws that make up the essence of external Judaistic practices. Or sometimes, and very commonly, the word law just simply means the idea of a moral principle, that it's the idea of law. Now, what Paul seems to be saying here is that there is a new way of righteousness, a new way of justifying yourself that's apart from the principle of law. It's apart from the whole idea of conforming to a standard and being rewarded for it. So it seems in this context, he probably means that number four definition there. Just like in the first case, he means the second definition. He's talking about a righteous status that God gives to sinners. Why do we say that? Look at the context. What's he talking about? He's talking about sinners and how sinners can possibly be justified. 
So when you look at the context and Paul says, but now I have a new way, a new way of what? A new way of what he was just talking about in the two previous chapters, which is trying to be justified before God. So that's how you look at words and determine from their semantic field, you determine their specific meaning. So here Paul is simply saying that there is a way of being righteous before God apart from your conformity to his moral standards. And you go, wow, this is going to be good. Yeah, it is. It's really good. And we'll see that it leads, it alone leads to a biblical conformity to God's standard to the best of our ability. We'll get back to that at the end. But here we want to look at this idea of being justified. Justification is a legal act. It's what we call a forensic or legal act. It's something, whereas sanctification is an experience, uh, it's a, an internal experience. It's something that we participate in. In our justification, this new status that we receive, it's all by God's work. We simply receive it. We contribute nothing to it except the sin that made it necessary. But in sanctification, we do contribute. Now, it's a feeble contribution compared to what God does in sanctification. God does work through us for our sanctification, but we are consciously collaborating in our sanctification. That's the reason we call sanctification synergistic. This is monergistic. This is something that only one energy does. Only God justifies us. We don't justify ourselves and we don't participate in it. We don't contribute to it. We do nothing to contribute to our righteous status. It's given to us. It's a gift. Furthermore, sanctification is progressive. It takes place over time. Justification is punctiliar. It happens in one moment like that. The moment you trust in Jesus Christ, you are justified and you have the full rights of your justification. You have the benefits of justification. In sanctification, it grows and develops. You become more sanctified over time. But gentlemen, in justification, you cannot be more justified later on. You are fully justified. From the moment you are justified, you receive it forensically. You receive it legally. You receive it as an act of God in toto. When Jesus died on the cross, he says, it is finished. Your justification is complete there. Your sanctification continues on. So you see the difference between justification and sanctification. Justification is righteousness, a righteous status that is imputed to us, just like an accountant has Assets and liabilities, you just simply reckon one or the other, you impute. That's what God does in righteousness. But now, says the apostle, there is a righteousness and a status given by God that is apart from your performance. On the other hand, sanctification is not imputed, it's infused. See, justification is an external act, an objective, external, legal, forensic act, declaring your status. Sanctification is an internal experiential infusion of God's character into your character 
that progressively grows through time. So it's very important that we make a distinction between justification and sanctification. What Paul is talking about primarily here, the heart of the gospel here is understanding how you have this righteous status before God apart from your performance. And the reason you need to know this is that your performance stinks. And I don't have to know you personally to say that. I know Romans 1, Romans 2, and Romans 3, verses 1 through 20, and your performance stinks. So if you think that your status before God, your standing before Him, your court record in the divine court is based upon your performance, you're all, you should be nervous wrecks. You should be flooding over to the Christian Psychological Center after this Bible study if you think that your status before God is based upon your religious performance. You are in deep weeds. <laughs> Even preachers catch themselves every once in a while. You do not want to be in deep weeds. You want to be in, in the beauty of God's love and acceptance. And you need to know this. When you know that your status is a forensic act declared by God apart from the principle of law, now you can rest assured, you dirty, rotten scoundrel. Yeah, even you. Dirty, rotten scoundrel. You can rest assured. And you can't rest assured, you dirty, rotten scoundrel, in any other way. Because your dirtiness, your rottenness, and your scoundrel behavior is always before your face. And you're always wondering how a wretch like you could ever be considered a son of God. This is how. It's apart from law. And whenever I see this word apart from law, I just want to bow down before God. I want to kiss the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ and one day we'll all have that privilege. Just bow before Him. I have a status apart from my religious performance, my moral performance, my bad attitudes, and everything else. That's what Paul is saying. This is justification. Now, the big question is, uh, does Paul, is he bringing up some newfangled idea? Is he contradicting everything the Jews have ever been taught? Is he violating all the law of Moses? Moses who said, do this and you shall live. Is Paul bringing us a new religion? Look at the next phrase. We learn that this justification is not only apart from the law, but it was foretold in the Old Testament. This is Old Testament religion. And I suggest, just read Psalm 51. That's Old Testament. Here, David committed the whoppers of adultery with another man's wife, covered it up by murdering him, and then as an act of judgment, the child of his impregnated mistress dies as an act of God's judgment. Now, there's a lot of sin on his hands. But when you read Psalm 51, you'll see that he knows he can cry out for God's mercy and he'll be forgiven and he'll be washed. He has confidence. David knows the gospel. And he's calling out for God to do the very things we're talking about, to justify him and to cleanse him and 
to give him a sanctified life. He's asking for all of those things, and we'll see how this works. It's the same thing. Paul said, this is the gospel foretold in the Old Testament. I'm telling you what your mamas and daddies should have been teaching you. You're Jewish people. Of course, he had Jews and Gentiles, but he's especially aware of his Jewish audience here. And he says, I'm not bringing up a new religion. This is old religion coming to fulfillment. It's an old religion that your rabbis don't recognize because they take the Old Testament and twist it. And you'll see much of Jesus' ministry, including especially the Sermon on the Mount, is to try to strip away the misunderstandings of the rabbi from the Old Testament so that you can understand your Old Testament. And if you want to know, well, how do I understand my Old Testament? It's from the New Testament. That's the testimony of Jesus and the apostles who are teaching you the real truth of the Old Testament. That's what Jesus was saying in Luke 24 when he was teaching the men on the road to Emmaus, the scriptures, and he showed them how they all led to Jesus Christ himself. And that's what the apostle Paul is doing here. As a matter of fact, throughout Romans, how many citations of the Old Testament do you have? Scores of citations. Romans is basically Paul's new, regenerate understanding of the Old Testament. And he's citing the Psalms and Isaiah and Genesis and Deuteronomy. He's citing all these books of the Old Testament to say, this is what it always meant and I missed it until I got converted. Now I see it. So he's saying, this is not a new idea. This is the ancient idea that was in the scriptures and we missed it. And Paul is bringing it out for us. Now, notice that uh, thirdly, see, this is through faith in Jesus Christ. This is through faith in Jesus Christ. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Now, faith is used five times in our text today, and it's obviously a key principle. And I'm going to talk about this again in just a few moments because the word does keep coming up, and we'll study some different things about it in a moment. But first of all, notice that by this faith, we just simply mean simply trusting in Jesus. Simply trusting. Now, there are three aspects of faith. There's the knowledge of the facts of the incarnation, the crucifixion, the resurrection, the second coming, and so on. Those are the facts. So there's knowledge. And then there's assent, agreement to the facts. So it's not just knowing the facts. That's not faith. But faith includes agreeing to the truthfulness of the facts. Now, there's a third element that is necessary because you can see the first two elements, knowing the facts and agreeing to the truthfulness of the facts. The devil has that. And James says he shudders because he realizes the second coming is a fact of the gospel and it's also true. And he believes it more than you do. And so he trembles. And it makes him very angry because his time is short. So the devil has faith in that sense. He knows the facts and he agrees that they're true. All the facts of the Bible. The devil knows and believes that the Bible is an inspired word of God. The devil knows more theology than all of us put together. And he believes it's all true. So obviously faith is more than that. Faith includes putting your trust in what you agree is true. The devil does not do that. He does not obey what he knows is true. He doesn't love what he knows is true. And he doesn't trust what he knows is true. Real believers do. That's the reason that in our language in 
the Westminster Confession of Faith, you Presbyterians, it says that faith is receiving and resting upon Jesus Christ alone as he is offered in the gospel. So it's a receiving and it's a resting upon. So often the analogy is used of a chair. You can know it's a chair and you can believe it holds people up, but faith is doing this. It's sitting on the chair, putting your weight on it. And the same with Jesus Christ. It's simply trusting in him. Secondly, it's solely trusting in him. Solely trusting in him. Not trusting in yourself. Not trusting in your grandmother who is a wonderful Christian. Not trusting in your church, which is a wonderful church, whatever it is. It's not trusting in anything in yourself. It's trusting solely in Jesus Christ. So, you, you know, as the hymn writer says, nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, look to thee for dress. Uh, helpless, flee to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. In other words, you can see how Top Lady says, all my hope is built on him and nothing else. I stand here on him and nowhere else. It's solely in Christ. That's the nature of faith. It turns away from self. You don't trust yourself. You don't trust anybody else for your salvation. You trust in Christ alone. Then thirdly, notice it's a sincere trusting. And that would mean that you, you trust him truly from your heart. And the way that you can tell is from the fruit of your faith. As we'll see in a moment, faith is always accompanied by moral behavior. I th you say, I'm, well, hold on, I'm confused. I thought you said that my justification has nothing to do with my moral, failure, my moral behavior. You're right, I said that. Uh, but I didn't say your Christian life has nothing to do with moral behavior, nor did I say that faith has nothing to do with your moral behavior. If you are a believer trusting in Jesus Christ, that is life transforming. You're trusting him not only to rescue you from the fires of hell, you're trusting him to rescue you from the pollution of this world and of the flesh and of the devil. And so your sincerity in trusting him for your justification is also seen in your sincerely trusting him for your sanctification. Your sanctification is imperfect, as we've seen. It's infused and it's gradual and it's progressive and it has its ups and downs. Justification is complete and perfect and punctiliar in the moment. It's done. But you're trusting Christ for both. You trust him for your status. You also trust him for your growth and maturity. And if both are not there, neither is there. If one is not there, the other is not there. So if you're not trusting Christ for your sanctification, you have not sincerely trusted him for your justification. So you can see that faith is, it is simple. It is solely trusting in him and it is sincere. Now D, Notice Paul says, this is equal for all. It's true for church people and it's true for non-church people. That's basically what he's saying. For those of you who were baptized at infancy, never knew a moment when you were not a Christian where you didn't consciously trust in Jesus Christ. There are some of you here in the room like that. It's just as true for you as it is for the hellion who came to Christ yesterday at 80 years old. You are both 
justified solely apart from your performance, both of you. And we'll see this has all kinds of implications in your spiritual life. But he's saying it's equal for all. He says, first of all, all are equally in need. And he makes this clear in verse 23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The greatest tragedy of humankind is that we've lost the glory of God. When Adam and Eve were placed in the Garden of Eden, they had the glory of God upon them. They shone with his likeness. We lost the glory. Whether you're a religious person or not a religious person, Paul says, we all equally stand in need of recovering the glory of God in our lives. We've lost it. Religious people and non-religious people, Christians and Buddhists, both by nature have lost the glory of God. But secondly, all are equally justified by the grace of God as a gift. So it's both our need and our salvation. They both come in the same way. So you are justified, you person who never knew a day when you were not a believer. You're justified before God. You're accepted by him, not because you've been walking with him all these years. Give up on that. You are accepted by him just like the drunk taken out of the gutter yesterday. It's the same acceptance. It's a free gift that you don't deserve. That's what a gift is. You didn't earn it. You didn't pay for it. You couldn't possibly claim that you had anything to do with it. It was just given to you. That's the word gift. That's what it means. No strings attached. Given to you. So he's saying we're all equal. We're all on equal footing. This has everything to do with relationships in the church, as we'll see. We all have to understand we had the same need, and we received the same gift, and it was necessary for all of us, regardless of our morality, before we came to Christ. Now, E, notice that this justification about which we're speaking is through redemption in Christ Jesus redemption. Now, this word is very important. And you'll notice if you read John Stott's commentary that he spends time talking about three key words in this text. This is the first one. This word redemption is a commercial word. It's a word from the marketplace. And what it means is just to buy something back. Some of you are old enough to remember the S&H green stamps. And when your mama got enough green stamps, my mother kept them religiously. When she got all of her books together and she figured out she could get a mixer, we would drive to, from my little town to Chattanooga, 60 miles away, to go to what? The Redemption Store. S&H Green Stamp Redemption Center. And what do you do? You take your S&H green stamps and all your books, and they look, they look through them, be sure you got all the stamps in there, and count your books, and it's got to be just right. And you redeem your stamps for the blender, or you actually redeem the blender with the stamps, to be technically correct with the language. What are you redeeming? You're not redeeming the stamps, you're redeeming the blender. So what are you doing with the, what, do you, what does it mean to redeem the blender? It means to get it out of the redemption center into your home. You've redeemed it. You've bought it back. You've, uh, also this word would be used by God in the Old Testament. I gave you some citations here in Exodus and Isaiah 
where God speaks of redeeming his people. And what does he redeem them from? Well, in Exodus, he's redeeming them from Egypt. In Isaiah, he's redeeming them from Babylon. So he's redeeming them out of captivity. That's the meaning of it. So the other word that's similar to this one in Greek is the English word ransom. And you know what a ransom is. Someone kidnaps someone. You have to pay ransom to what? To spring them loose, to get them out. And they're both commercial words. You ransom or redeem. You can ransom someone from prison. You can pay a little money up front. It's called bond. You can ransom someone, get them out of jail. That's what the word means. Now, the question is, what's the ransom payment? Well, the payment is the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's making, he's the S&H green stamp, and you're the blender. And so you say, well, who, who am I being ransomed from? Well, in one sense, you're taken captive by the devil. But in the ultimate sense, you are being ransomed from God himself who has you under his wrath and condemnation. And you're in his prison. And he provides his own payment to get you out of his prison. This is the amazing thing about our redemption. And Paul says, how does this justification take place? God himself has redeemed his people through the sacrifice of his own son. It's an amazing story, but it's notice he stresses here. It's through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. There is no other redemption. There's no other S&H green stamp that's going to get you out there. If I'd, if I'd brought some blue and black stamps, I'd never gotten my blender. It had to be the green stamps. It had to be the redemption that was being demanded. And there's nothing that is appropriate or legitimate or sufficient to spring you loose from your captivity except for what you owed in the first place, which was perfect obedience to the law of God. And the reason you can't be justified is that you surrendered your obedience to the law a long time ago, and your whole nature is to break the law of God. So there's no way you can redeem yourself. And there's no way your mama can do it because she broke the law too and she's in prison with you. The payment that's required is a perfect life. And that's exactly what Jesus offers. And Paul says, do you understand? This righteousness is apart from the law as the Old Testament taught us. And it is through the redemption that is provided solely in Jesus Christ. So you pick that up then in E. Now, notice three things about this redemption. These are very, very important for us. Number one, it is at God's initiative. Whom God put forward. As John Stott put it in his commentary, God gave himself to save us from himself. He gave himself in order to save us from himself, from his wrath, which we deserved. Make no mistake about it, the motive the driving motive for this redemption is inexplicable love. 
Nobody can explain this love. Why would God allow his own cherished son to be punished because of you dirty, rotten scoundrels? Who can imagine any father doing such a thing? It's beyond description. It's an amazing love. It's a grace beyond degree, as we sang about just a moment ago from Isaac Watts. Who can, who can explain this? He says it was at God's initiative, and that's all we can say. God loves us because he loves us because he loves us. There's no other reason that we could possibly figure out. It's an, it's an infinite regress. He loves us because he loves us because he loves us because he loves us. So it's all at his initiative. He did it. We didn't dream it up. We didn't even ask for it. God just provided it. And then we asked for it once we knew he had provided it. It was at his initiative. Secondly, as a substitutionary atonement, a substitutionary atonement, as a propitiation by his blood. Now, this word propitiation is in your ESV, but it probably wasn't in the translation you had before you bought your ESV. In the NIV, it's called a sacrifice of atonement, which is a fine word, a series of words, to describe this word, this Greek word that's here, hilasterion. In the RSV, they translated it expiation because a scholar named C.H. Dodd had written some articles against propitiation. The RSV picked up on it in the 50s, 51 was it, or 52 when the RSV was done. And they translated propitiation expiation because expiation means the removal of something. So the translators felt comfortable saying that sin was expiated. So the atonement is called an expiation, the removal of sin. Propitiation does not address sin. Propitiation addresses God. And here's what propitiation means. It means to satisfy. It means to appease. So if you propitiate someone, if you propitiate the judge, you've paid your fine. You propitiated him. You made him happy. You pleased him. You satisfied his justice. The word propitiate means to satisfy God, not to expiate the sin, although the way you satisfy God is to expiate the sin. But some mid-20th century scholars didn't like the word, which is in the King James Version, by the way, propitiation, because it suggested wrath, that God is angry and has to be appeased. Well, guess what? That's exactly what Paul is saying. You may not like it, this may give you some vision of God with which you feel a little uncomfortable. Well, believe me, I feel uncomfortable. You know, sinners in the hands of an angry God, that's uncomfortable. And so we don't, we don't like to contemplate it unless, and we can't possibly contemplate it without knowing that we've been forgiven. Without knowing the blood of Christ, you can't possibly contemplate this idea of the wrath of God for sinners. But when you do know the blood of Christ... You want to contemplate the wrath of God because that's exactly what your Savior took on for you was the wrath of God. Now, here's something that's very important. I mentioned here in my notes that this is a substitutionary atonement. And the word atonement is the English word that just means at one meant. 
So it's a word of reconciliation. We're brought into oneness with God through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So it's an atonement. But this atonement, I'm saying in my notes, is substitutionary. Why, why do I say that? In the New Testament, there are five or six semantic fields that the apostles used to describe the atonement. We saw that one was commercial language. This is the language of sacrifice, the language of propitiation. You also have a legal and forensic language. You also have a military language, the language of triumph. He triumphed over the devils by the cross, says the apostle in Colossians 2, 15. So you have different semantic fields. But as my theology professor, Dr. Roger DeCole, pointed out years ago, in every one of those cases, as the atonement is described, in every case, it implies a substitution. That Jesus Christ took our place. So if he, and once again, the word propitiation implies this necessarily. If he satisfied God, what did he satisfy? God's wrath against me. So if he's satisfying God's wrath against me, he took my place. Likewise, in the commercial language, if he has redeemed or ransomed me, he has brought himself into captivity in order to spring me free. He's the payment in my place that I might go free. You see what I'm saying? But in every case of the semantic fields that are used to describe the atonement, in every case, they imply a substitution. Now, there is a debate about for whom is the atonement effective. We know that the work of Jesus Christ is uh, sufficient in its magnitude to cover the sins of the entire world. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever comes to him will have everlasting life. So there's no question about the intrinsic value of the atonement. The question among theologians is, for whom is it efficient? Not just sufficient, but efficient. And the argument, this is where I'm going to argue with you Methodist uh, Arminians, who would say that the atonement is accomplished efficiently, equally for everybody, uh, just so that you know where I'm coming from, I'm what they call a high Calvinist, okay? So now I've identified myself. What are you? You know, oh, yeah, so low, low, yeah, yeah. So high, Calvinist, high Calvinism is represented in the Westminster Confession of Faith. And you'll see that, that what we're saying is that if Christ has substituted himself for you, you have been justified. The payment's already made. So how could you still be in captivity? You with me? For example, if my mother goes to the SNH Green Stamp Redemption Center and she turns in her SNH Green Stamp books and then she comes back to my little town, we all say, well, where's the blender? Oh, forgot the blender. Well, do you have the stamps? No, I gave the stamps. Mom, what in the world did you do? That makes no sense. Well, it makes no sense either. If God has put forward his son as a propitiation to satisfy the wrath of God on your behalf and you don't show up ransomed, that makes no sense at all. So God made a payment and he didn't get anything from it? That's impossible. 
So you can see the logic of the high Calvinists. We're saying, just as Paul says in Ephesians 5.25 when he's talking about marriage, he says to the men, lay down your lives as Christ died for the church and gave himself for her. So he lays down his life, frankly, for the elect. So it's sufficient for everybody, efficient for the elect. Those are the ones for whom the atonement was designed. And so the high Calvinist, like myself, is saying, do we think that God sent his son hoping he might get some converts? Or did he send his son to rescue his people? And it seems to me the latter. And if he sent his son to rescue his people, let me tell you, his son rescued his people. So when I, as a pre-25-year-old, am not trusting in Christ, I don't know it, and you wouldn't know it, but I was elect. And when I became 25 and was converted, God in his own time and by his own providence and for his own reasons brought me to the point of conversion. But the price for me personally had already been paid and I just didn't know it until I became a believer. So that his work in my life, what the Holy Spirit is doing is applying the work of Jesus Christ to the people who have been elect by God. So we normally think of election by the Father, the atonement by the Son, and regeneration by the Holy Spirit. And you can see how all three persons of the Trinity are working together in harmony to accomplish the rescue of their people. I expect to hear from you Arminians before this week is out. (laughs) But that's, I couldn't pass substitutionary atonement. Now, let's go on to the next one. Received by faith. And here, let me, let me argue with the Roman Catholics in the room so I can just get everybody except the Baptists and the Episcopalians angry at me. Uh, here he says to be received by faith. And when you get to verse 28, isn't it more explicit? Here's a, you know, the, another quotation of, on uh, faith. And he says, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So what we're saying is that it's by faith alone. Now, Luther wrongly inserted the word alone in verse 28 because Origen, one of the church fathers, had done that. But it's an inappropriate Latin translation. The word alone is not there. But the Protestants are saying the concept is there. Doesn't he say it in in the early verses of uh, verse 21 where he says apart from the law and then verse 28, apart from the law? Is he not making a clear point? This faith is apart from obedience to the law. This faith is faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. In other words, you're turning from yourself by faith, trusting in Jesus Christ. The ground of your justification, the payment, the value in your place is the work of Jesus Christ and nothing else. You don't add to it and you cannot subtract to it from it. If you tried to add to it, The problem is that's actually a subtraction because anything you add is adulterated. You do not have perfect motives when you do your works. So if I say it's the work of Jesus Christ and in addition to that, the merits of your work or the merits of some of the saints or something like that, all those works are imperfect except for the works of Christ. The works of Christ are perfect works done with perfect motives and that's what's required. So you don't want to add anything to Christ because what you do is subtract from Christ. So let's leave Christ alone. It's in Christ alone and it's 
by faith alone. In other words, faith is not another work. You're not earning your salvation by believing. Faith is merely the instrument by which you receive the perfect work of Christ as the grounds of your justification before God. And so we don't want to mix our faith with our works in our justification. Now we're going to mix it, but in a different place theologically, and I'll show you in a moment. That's when I'm going to argue with the Presbyterians, and let's get there. So it's received by faith. This perfect gift given for God's people is received by a simple, soul, sincere, trusting in the gift of Jesus Christ on my behalf. Now, lastly, F is for the, well, not lastly under this category, for the display of his righteousness. And this is a major point. We ask the question, how can God sustain his justice and still be the justifier of sinners? Here's the answer. He was forbearing in the Old Testament sins He delayed punishment of them until Christ was on Calvary's cross. All the Old Testament sins were laid upon Jesus on Calvary. God, in his forbearance, was patient with those sins, knowing that the payment would be made. He would put forward the payment thousands of years later, which he did on Calvary's cross. Then secondly, notice his justice. It was to show, this atonement was to show his righteousness, his righteous status, not Not our gift of justification, but his righteous character. And here the word righteousness is used differently, as you can see. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and what the Old Testament said never to do, justify the sinner. So how can he violate seemingly the Old Testament and still be a just God? Here's how. He is just. Every sin was perfectly paid for. In fact, so perfectly paid for that John in his first epistle says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Why is he just to forgive us? He must forgive us because full payment has been made in Jesus Christ. So we're saved not only by his grace, we're saved by his justice because a substitutionary atonement has stood in my place, made the payment. Now God is obligated by his own justice to save me. That's how the mystery is solved, says the Apostle Paul. And that's the reason that the system of salvation is important. It's important for your assurance so that your nerves are relieved of their burdens, but it's also important for the vindication of God's own justice. Now, lastly, fussing at the Presbyterians, I get a minute. No boasting, no racial discrimination, and thirdly, no antinomianism. Presbyterians sometimes think that because our justification is not based upon our performance, that there's no performance at all. I've heard Presbyterians say it. We have nothing to do with the law. Wrong. Paul says, does this salvation, this justification by grace alone, does it undermine the law? No, he says. On the other hand, it upholds it. Here's how it upholds it. When you've been justified apart from the law, you recognize you're sanctified by the law. So we're sanctified by faith. We're also sanctified by that faith working itself out in love and conformity to the law of God. So as David says, I love thy law, O Lord. And as Paul says in Romans 7, the law is good and just and holy. 
So when we have been justified and relieved of our guilt burden, then with gratitude we turn back to the law of God and it no longer judges us, it guides us in our walk with the Lord. So as James says, faith without works is dead. It's useless. It doesn't justify. So if you have a faith that's not at work, it's not a saving faith. That's the whole point. And you Presbyterians really need to get this clear in your head. You've got to embrace the law in its proper usage. And it must be used in your daily life. You're looking at the law as your love manual with God. How do you love him? How do you draw near to him? You keep the law. You go to church. You tithe. You love your neighbors yourself. And those are all necessary, contingently necessary, but necessary. Because without, without holiness, no one shall see the Lord. And the point is, if you've been duly justified and received that uh, unbelievable gift, you will then walk with the Lord in sanctification. As a matter of fact, as we'll see in Romans 6, that's the only way to be sanctified. It was a full moon. That means full theology. Come back next time, and it won't be so complicated. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this great gospel. Thank you for... Uh, your kindness to us, which is beyond our ability to comprehend, to think that you would take dirty, rotten scoundrels like ourselves and declare us to be innocent before a watching world. What sense does that make? It only makes sense because you've made the perfect payment in your perfect son out of your perfect love, and we are perfectly yours. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.